Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about the shadowy red market of bones with help from author Brian Sweetek. You'll also learn why venting your anger is unhealthy and what you should do instead, and why asparagus makes your pee smell weird. Let's satisfy some curiosity. You can buy some weird things on the internet, but if you had to name one of the weirdest things, I have a feeling human bones might make the short list. Bones are a bigger deal than you might think, though, and that's according to science writer Brian Sweetek. He's the author of the new book Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone, and we had a chance to ask him about a thing called the red market. It's one of many bone-related subjects he tackles in the book, and here's what he told us. The red market refers to really, I think a journalist, Scott Carney, came up with that name, and he um, you know, tracked us. It, it can be blood, it can be hair, it can be skin or muscle or organs, and including bone. And the red market trade in human bone is, you know, we, we might think that this is a, sort of a thing of the past, but it's really still going on today, particularly like places in China and India, like you may have seen stories about even exhibits like um, some of the ones where they're plastinated, you know, human bodies, um, that some of these were people who were, you know, prisoners who were executed in China who somehow found their way into um, this illegal trade. Uh, in India, many medical students are encouraged to get a real human skeleton to learn anatomy from, and that in part helps fuel this trade uh, where bodies can be stolen from where they're deposited after, after death and deflashed and then sold to medical students. Even on Instagram, you, if you know the right hashtags to follow, you can find um, human bones for sale. And um, <laughs> the, the sale of them might not be ethical, but in many cases it winds up being legal. And that's still something that we're uh, grappling with. Like, where what is the... Um, consent um, of a human skeleton. You know, if somebody didn't want to wind up as somebody's, you know, curio or on a mantelpiece or something like that, um, what do we owe that person in um, returning their remains or taking care of their remains? And that's something that is still being worked out. One of the ones that's recently been in the news, um, as recently I think as last summer, was uh, the case of uh, Charles Byrne, or someone at, at, in the late 18th century was known as the Irish Giant in England. So he had a physiological uh, disorder that you know, gave him a pretty impressive stature, and um, he knew, given his celebrity, that you know this was a great time of sort of body collecting and, and body snatching and bone stealing, you know, even amongst um, you know, medical professional surgeons, like people who wanted to understand how the body worked and wanted bodies to dissect to you know, teach students and things like that. And Byrne had a feeling that you know, after he passed away that someone would try and steal his body. And that's basically what happened, that um, the surgeon was able to kind of you know, Shanghai his remains. Byrne wanted to be buried and bombed in the ocean in a lead coffin and you know, be left at peace, but his skeleton up until recently is still on display at the Royal College of Surgeons in, in London, and um, there's murmurings that he might finally get his last wish, but it's just been this back and forth over years and years and years about you know, Byrne's last wishes versus what doctors feel they can learn you know, from his, his skeleton and the historic now story that, you know, goes along with it. So this is stuff that, you know, it's not left just in the 19th century. This is, you know, continuing even now. It's been this sort of um, looter mentality that was left over from the 19th century that we're still untangling. Brian went on to say that bones have a dynamic and vibrant life and that bone isn't just something you see after death that's dead tissue. It also tells you a lot about who we are and where we came from and what we think about ourselves. Brian's book is called Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone, and it was the number one new release in general anthropology on Amazon when it came out just a couple weeks ago. You can find links to the book and more from Brian Sweetek in today's show notes.
Studies show that venting your anger may not be the best way to get rid of it. Whether you're complaining about your boss or you're just upset that April Fool's Day is just coming around again and everybody's going to be lying on the internet just like they always do. And it's not even that big of a deal. Like, why why do we celebrate this thing? That day rules, first of all. No, it doesn't. Oh, we're going to have so much to talk about this. (laughs) So are you venting? I think I might. Yes. Okay. so so you might feel like venting your anger like I do. But that might actually make you more angry. You do seem more worked up right now. Yeah, I'm a little worked up. A 2007 study reviewed nearly five decades of anger expression research. And based on the study's findings, here's what the authors wrote. Quote, psychological research has shown virtually no support for the beneficial effects of venting and instead suggests that venting increases the likelihood of anger expression and its negative consequences. Unquote. Ouch. And according to the research, people who vent a lot get angry more often. A 2013 study had similar findings. That study looked at people who like to vent online or send angry tweets to release their frustrations. And it found that people who read or write online rants are angrier or more unhappy after they do so. Fast forward to 2017, and a study found that people who complained about annoyances at work were more affected by those annoyances. When participants in that study did not complain or escalate minor issues or stew over problems too much, those bad events didn't impact mood or work engagement. So when your boss drives you to start punching walls, what should you do? You don't need to bottle it up necessarily. Experts suggest practical coping mechanisms like counting to 10, going for a walk, or taking some deep breaths. Or address the problem in a cooperative way rather than a hostile one. Here's what the author of that 2007 study, Jeffrey Lohr, told Fast Company. Quote, What people fail to realize is that the anger would have dissipated had they not vented. Moreover, it would have dissipated more quickly had they not vented and tried to control their anger instead. Unquote. Okay, so I won't go overboard on April Fool's Day, but on April 1st, we're doing something fun in this show. Yeah, we could do something fun, but I don't want to fool people. We won't do that. See, we address it in a cooperative way. Yeah, there. Good. Teamwork. (laughs) Our last story is all about why you should not be afraid of asparagus. I don't know about you, but I love asparagus. I do too. Cool. Some people, not so much. And as reported by The Conversation, one of the reasons might be because of its pungent after effects. As Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1781, quote, A few stems of asparagus eaten shall give our urine a disagreeable odor, unquote. Yes, I'm talking about an odor that has become so well known, it's actually referred to as asparagus pee. Now, look, asparagus provides a rich source of vitamins and minerals, and making it part of your healthy diet may reduce risk of cancer and cardiovascular-related diseases. I'm here to tell you that the odor in question is due to a pair of chemicals that you should not be afraid of. Scientists believe the smell comes from methanethiol and S-methylthioester. When your digestive tract breaks down the acids that are naturally present in asparagus, you end up with these compounds. And they turn into foul-smelling gas when your body gets rid of them. Weirdly, though, not everyone's noses pick up on this scent. In fact, one study from last year found that only 40% of participants could smell the odor in their urine, or in the urine of others, for that matter. Yes, the participants in this study sniffed samples of other people's asparagus pee. The things we do for science. And oddly, a lower proportion of women were able to detect the odor, despite the fact that researchers believe women generally have a better sense of smell than men. 
Researchers think you're able to pick up on these smells based on your genetic makeup, although there are hundreds of variants in the DNA sequence across multiple genes involved in your sense of smell, so pinpointing an exact gene probably isn't going to happen in the near future. But whether you can smell it or not, remember, asparagus is your friend, even if you might make some weird smells after you eat it. I don't think I smell this at all. You don't smell it? (gasps) Wow. Yeah, no. You're lucky. You go through the world in a state of bliss. (laughs) Today's ad-free episode was brought to you by our patrons. Special thanks to Scott Gates, Mary Rose, Walt DeGrange, Bob Buckley, and Braden Johnson for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate it. You can support Curiosity Daily too. Just visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. We've got lots of bonus stuff and you'll be happy if you do it. You can also find a link to our Patreon page in today's show notes. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.